What's happening, weirdos? So excited to have another chat with uh, Dane Cook. So funny, such a great guy, such a nice guy, such a sweet guy. And I love this conversation so much. I hope you guys enjoyed as much as I did. If you if you enjoyed half as much, you're gonna you're gonna shit your pants. It's been a while since we had our uh, first chat. Years uh, when we uh, coined the term "mom walks," and I think there's plenty of terms to coin from this lovely chat. So let's get to it. Uh, always, we so 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 appreciate your support. The best way to support the show is to get a Pete's Pick. Pete's Picks are our sponsors, but Pete's Picks means I only pick things that I actually use and wear. First, me undies. I'm currently wearing, uh, oh, they're lion. Nope, porcupines. I thought it was a lion with a bushy mane. It's a porcupine. Me undies is my favorite, favorite, favorite underwear, lounge pants, onesies. I heard about them on other podcasts. I bought a complete overhaul, both me and Val, top to tails, everything I got in pajama pants and undies, I completely, we both did. And I haven't looked back. I love it. So let's talk about love. You know, we're doing it. If there's one thing that got us through the past year, other than that video of Snoop Dogg vibing to let it go in his car, which I truly did enjoy, it's love. And that means getting extra cheesy for Valentine's Day. Uh, It's okay. We'll allow it. Despite everything, we found new ways to match our daily lives together with, with the ones that we love the most now that we're spending so much time together. And that's why MeUndies has released their V-Day collection in undies, loungewear, and more so you and your Valentine can match through it all. I'm uh, proud to say Val and I sincerely do this, and I think it's cute and fun and incredibly comfortable. They're so soft. I love it. Show that special someone how much you care and say those three words everyone wants to hear Match my undies. And if you're single, no problem. Show yourself some love in something that makes you feel amazing because you deserve it. I really do look forward to putting on my me undies in the morning. I love the patterns. I love the feel. I love the fabric. Uh, it's something that puts me in a slightly better mood in the morning, and that's part of the reason why I love them so much. They're made from micro-modal fabric, softer than soft, and are available in a range of sizes XL to 4XL. I actually wear 3XL. I think I kind of like them a little bit bigger, but or maybe I'm just enormous. And I'm also a MeUndies member. A membership gives you and your boo a new pair of undies or socks every month. Members get discounted pricing on everything MeUndies makes, including early access to major print launches like Star Wars and other fun things, which I like. So show your support of this podcast. It means so much, especially in this crazy time when this is pretty much all we can do. You get 15% off and free shipping for weirdos. That's 15% off and free shipping. They have a problem-free philosophy, Akuna Matata style. If you're not satisfied with any product for any reason, they'll refund or exchange it. No caveats, no exceptions, no questions, no problem. Go to MeUndies.com slash weird. That's MeUndies.com slash weird for 15% off your first order and free shipping. Also, sitting here on my desk, where are they? I'm, I'm jacked on these. I was writing today. Well, jacked isn't right. It's not a stimulant. You know this by now. It's my friend Alpha Brain. Alpha Brain is a nootropic that helps support memory and focus. And for the past six years, I haven't done anything that relies on my brain. That's writing scripts, 
That's writing stand-up. That's performing stand-up. That's recording this podcast. Every single episode of this podcast, I take two, three alpha brain beforehand. It really helps. And as I always say, I even just take it when I don't have anything to do because I want to be clear. I want to be able to access my brain, my vocabulary, my memories, everything that I need that's up there. Alpha brain is earth-grown ingredients. Like I said up, up top, it's not a stimulant. It's not caffeine. In fact, I take it before bed sometimes because it gives me cool dreams. It just helps your brain through nutrition function at its peak performance. I swear by it. It's in my car. It's in my travel bag. It's in the pockets of my jackets. That's real. People have come up to me and asked for it, and I proved that. I love Alpha Brain. I wish I had it in college. I wish I had it in my early stand-up career, and I'm so glad I have it now. The best way to try and see if it, uh, if you love it is to just give it a try. And in doing so, show your support of the show. Go to onnit, O-N-N-I-T dot com slash weird. You'll get 10% off everything on that landing page. And of course, you'll see Alpha Brain on there. That's onnit.com slash weird. All right, guys. Enjoy my fun chat with a fun friend, Dane Cook, and get into it. All right, test one, two. I hear, I hear. M- MFC. <laughs> MFC. MFC. Fastest laugh on a podcast. <laughs> one point two seconds, you get a laugh out of me. MFC. Do you know how many people are removing that tattoo from their body all these years later? I cannot tell you how many people have written me and said, I love you. I continue to be a fan. Can you please give me permission to get rid of this tattoo? Wait, was I don't remember you encouraging people to get MFC uh, as a tattoo. The right? monkey fucking a coconut bit. For all, the, <laughs> for all the people that are joining us and saying, hey, what, I, what is this MFC uh, that he's referring to? It was a... It's it in a larger first, bit about getting in a fender bender, right? It was a yes. It was about a like, little. It was yes. a little piece to a larger uh, part of my repertoire, <laughs> and people were getting it tattooed on their bodies, as you know, college age kids. Yes, uh, often do when they when they find something that they want to claim as their own. Yes, yes, MFC. I still. MFC. I there's two pull quotes from that bit for me. I not forgive me. I know it's old. Uh, you've gotten great stuff. We're later. old. It's very old, but we're old. Let's be old. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of MFC because they fill out the accident report, but they never do it correctly. And it's like for name, you you drew a picture of a monkey fucking a coconut, <laughs> and then you said MFC. Is that you? <laughs> like like you you're giving them the benefit of the doubt. Is that you? <laughs> Are you MFC? Like, I don't want to be insensitive if that's a burden you've carried your entire life. And then the other so, one is... So wait, real quick. Oh, go ahead. Before we go, can you see... I want to make sure that this is all set up right. Can you see me? I can't see you, but I thought that was your choice. No, no, I want to... I'm, I'm trying to be seen. Just click start video in that lower left, Doug. Hold on. I'm on my iPhone on a tripod. The host is uh-huh. there. It is. Oh, I think you got to You got to rotate. You look like Paul Rudd. You got to rotate uh, a little bit this way, so you look like you. Okay, so I've got it on what is uh, commonly known as uh, landscape mode. Yeah, but it's landscape in portrait mode. So you want me to turn it back to? We're at uh, six. Turn it to three. 
Hold on. Let me see if I can do this without. Oh, oh there you go. Hold on now. That's what you want. Did that work? Yeah, yeah. And you still look like Paul Rudd. You're after you're after Rudd. You got your, your laser beams on Rudd. All right. So did that work? Am I good? Yeah, you're good. You are ignoring yes. this Paul Rudd riff. <laughs> I'm not. E- you I'm are ignoring. Strate- I'm just trying not to. You're strategically not getting engaged in any sort of claim that you are after Paul Rudd's uh, next part. As you I wish sip I was after water Paul Rudd's like Doctor I, really, I truly wish I could say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to see you, man. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you. Uh, I just want to very quickly say how much of a, a joy it is to be able to talk to you. Because not only has 2020 been quite a kerfuffle for everybody, but this this pocket, this moment, this this few weeks of the year are always extremely difficult for me for a number of reasons. Tell so me. Yes. thank you for um, you know allowing us to have a little chum time. I'm with you on that, man. First of all, can I just point out that we both look like dudes from Boston? We just do. Like I look at your face and I scan it and I see my cousins and my uncle. Like I see <laughs> you look, me and my brother have, I think, rightly claimed for many years that people from New England just look like people from New England. And right. you, it, it's not a compliment and it's not a, 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 it's not a put down. I'm just saying if I saw you and didn't know you, I would go, that man's seen a few New England winters. <laughs> that man right. went through the uh, Arlington public schools. Right. <laughs> you know, what, you know what I mean? What's wild is you probably would have said that if you saw me at 10 years old as well. Yeah, that's we right. We just have that weathered, uh, where we, we come out of the womb, you know, beaten down, <laughs> ready to put up the good fight. <laughs> That's what it is, man. Because you know what I was thinking about? I was like, you and Billy, Billy Burr, are, you know, he sold out. Didn't he sell out the garden? I'm sure he probably has. Yeah. I think course. he did. And then I was like, so, so few people have done that. You, of course, being one of them. Um, Andrew Dice Clay being the other. He's not from Boston. But I was like, so two out of the three that I know of. Oh, I think Aziz did it. But anyway, that, those are really good numbers for, for Boston. There's something about coming out of the womb already There's, looking like you're sitting in traffic. That's what well, we look- You know, the, the whole thing about, like, it, when you come up, the thing about the Boston crowds right away is whether it's sports or politics or comedy is they don't suffer fools. That's right. That's right. They don't have fucking time for your bullshit. Yeah, that's so right. And... And here's what happens early. And then what probably hurts us later is there's a word that later in your career, especially once you start getting towards the sunny coast over here, it's called being assertive. And Boston rivets that into you that there's no gray area. Yeah. You're either mailing it in or you're fucking delivering. Yeah. It's, it's Wahlberg. I'm the guy who's doing his job. You must be the other guy. That's like the such a Boston encapsulation right there. Right. Right, so that right. whole thing about being, uh, not being, uh, you know, precious with each other and allowing each other to grow through verbal hazing on the regular, I think prepares us for what we do now for a living, even though it probably gets us in a little, I know it's gotten me in hot water because you, you just want to call people on shit, not because you necessarily want to be a person 
with something over another person, it's because you want to see them bring the best out of themselves. So why bullshit them? That's really interesting. Yeah, no, I, I get that. You know who has that more than anybody is actually my mom. My mom, if I'm trying to like whitewash some issue, which I usually am, and I want to go back to why this time is hard because I'd love to talk about that with you. Okay. I'll talk to my mom about some family issue. Let's say it's my dad. And I'm just like, yeah, but you know, he was probably doing this. He might've been doing that. He might've been thinking this. She just won't have it. She's just like, that is, and she's a very pious woman, but she'll be like, baloney. But she can say baloney with all the force of any, of Lewis Black saying bullshit. Like, I'm like, oh, wow. And I, I sort of love it about her. I'm like, you do not want the let's all get a crystal in Sedona and hold hands. She's going to be like, no, he was wrong. Fuck that. Right. You know, without, yeah. without saying any of those words. My, my mom could literally during a, a kumbaya moment, turn to the person next to her and say, you're holding my fucking hand too tight. <laughs> That's my mom. That's my mom. I don't know if I told you this story. It's one of my favorite, my mom stories. It's also 30 seconds long. So don't worry anybody listening. Uh, but I, I got my first job writing on a show. It was at CBS Radford and I had, they came and visited and I was so excited to show them where the Seinfeld street is. It was really exciting. Right. And, but I was a staff writer. I was the low man on the pole and here's my kind of embarrassing parents. Seinfeld has this great bit about like, it's like shepherding ducks. They're just like quack, 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 quack. And you're like, get over here, mom, get over here. Like you're trying to wrangle them. And she goes up to this very, a uh, heavy man eating Skittles at the crafty table. He's like a, a crew man. And she just goes, it looks like you've had enough. She just said <laughs> that to someone she didn't know. Like it's cute, cuter now that they're in their seventies, but she was yeah. that way when she was 40. Like there was no, like I'm a kooky old person. They just said shit. Right. And, my, yeah. My, my mom was, uh, in that same similar fashion, if if we bought a pizza at Papa Gino's growing up and they put too much sauce, my mom would look at the pizza. She'd look at me across at the booth and she'd go, come with me. And then we'd go to the front and she'd throw the pan down on the counter and she'd say, and I quote, whoever's making the pizzas must love fucking sauce. Oh my God. That's very similar to my mom, minus the F words. I was in a drugstore in Lexington and we were buying, I wanted to buy the want ad because even back then I wanted to remember the want ad. Yes. It was the internet. It was eBay. It was printed out eBay and I wanted to buy TVs so I could edit the videos I was making with my friends. That's how I talked them into getting this TV for my room. And um, the guy said, do you have the want ad? And the guy goes, are you kidding? It's the Bible. And when he said that, my my stomach fell into my balls because I was just like, you shouldn't have said that, kid, because here it comes. My mom, <laughs> as if she had already been given sight, like she knew the scene. She was off book. She was just like, the Bible is the Bible. <laughs> like just wouldn't. And so like you grew up kind of with that, like a little, it sounds like the ball breaky stuff. I actually went hard the other way. All of that. Like if I do a roast, I love being like really mean in a roast. So I have the talent or if I, you know, that skill set, let's not say the talent, the skill set. Right. But like I learned to suppress it because my parents were like Don Rickles and fucking 
uh, I'm blanking on her name, Joan Rivers. Like they were just going around calling it like they see it. So right. meet my brother, you'll never meet people. We will never send food back. We'll never say at a massage, less pressure, please. I've been bruised. <laughs> I've been bruised at a massage before I'll say you're doing a bad job. <laughs> so it, it's weird. I wonder if, uh, you know, you're a little bit older than me. Maybe I started being Boston 2.0 where I was like, I'm going to be super polite to co- co- counter. Uh, I, I, got a, I got a nice uh, balance of my, you know, both my mom and dad were pretty uh, tenacious but they also, my mom was very compassionate and very, really sensitive. I think a lot of her kind of gusto came from, at, in, in her heart, she was actually, a, you know, kind of a, a wallflower. And she didn't want to get walked on at a certain point in her life. That's and that's right. when she started speaking up. My dad, although he could be really like samurai cutting, also had the ability just to be very gentle. Um, I so I I tended to be mo- a little bit more on the sensitive side until right there's always that 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 point of like okay I'm getting pushed I'm getting pushed and then it's like I got to speak up for myself <laughs> the, the problem with me is I didn't know that I could stop speaking once I got what I yes. needed yes stop then it was just like a rant except yes for an answer you can stop I would do that in writers rooms I the, the showrunners would be like he's right we should take this out and then I'd keep explaining why it was a bad joke. <laughs> And they're like, they already said yes. I'm like, yeah, but I'm getting laughs. Yeah, but you're wasting time. This is a waste of time. Oh, my gosh. I, oh, sorry. No, it's just, it's it's such a fascinating puzzle. Most, for for comedians in particular, everybody's stories, origin story is always interesting. But I love hearing how that combination of what our moms and dads are, the lack of one or the other, what that really means to the character we become on stage, and then how that dictates who we are in our lives. It's really fascinating. Oh, can't get over it. I can't get over it. Like, I, I see both in both of us as we're performing for sure. I probably said this last time you did it, which was years ago. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was a while ago. It was years ago. I'm sure. I, I don't know. Maybe, Katie, if you can look up how long. I'm, I'm sure it was at least six, seven years ago. It was. You said. It just really spoke to me. Your de- you were doing the garden. I'm pretty sure in the, in the docu series you did, and your dad was just sort of not sure if it was a big deal. Right. <laughs> and I I just laughed so hard. I was like, that is so my parents. What I and 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 I'm loading you to tell me what you used to do. What I do is I have to equate it to sports. I have to be like, Dad. It was March 2013, so it was seven years ago. Right. Um, I have to be like, he goes, well, how, how, how big of a deal is it to get a show on HBO, Peter? And I go, dad, it's like getting to the, more people have gotten to the world series. So many more people have played in the world series. So many people have had like a big play in the last game of the world series. And this, I know it's not exactly the same, but that's the only way I can kind of convince him. And then he, he'll sort of appreciate it. They'll be like, oh, okay, right. I, I get it, I get it. Yeah, uh, it's almost it's almost too big for them to even fathom. Uh, you know, it's it's almost too big for like when I look at that moment in my life, 
and what led up to that. And then I think like, wow, here was my mom and dad. They created me. And, and, and it's like, oh my gosh, this, the quietest kid in the house and, and in school is now selling how many tickets to, uh, you know, to the, the biggest venue in, in town. I think it took them a lot of years, especially my dad to realize like this, this lane that I had taken was a spectacular journey. Yeah. Um, but also the sports thing, I think he looked at so many things through that same kind of lens of like, oh, it, it must be different because it's not a team getting to a, 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 a final to a, and right, it took right. him a lot of years. And then he finally, I remember it was like, he was just at one of the shows with me and it finally all kind of like, he allowed it to wash over him that it was pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have that. I, I hope I have that. It, it sort of solidified a little bit now, but tell me why the, is it, is it the holidays that are hard? Cause I notice I go through a slump this time of year, every, every year. So tell me what, what's your yeah. experience? Well, I mean, it's a, it, it, it can get, there are years where it's melancholy just due to the fact that, you know, I lost my mom and dad in the same, in the same year, they both, you know, succumbed to cancer. And not only that, but I don't think sometimes people realize that my mentor, my high school drama teacher, who I called my second dad. I mean, in some ways, he was more of a father to me than my dad was because he got it, the creative side and all that. Yeah, yeah. And then he had passed away. And then uh, today, and why I'm wearing this shirt, not only for uh, this place being such an amazing milestone and and Stonehenge for us, but Patrice O'Neill nine years ago today. Oh, wow. We lost Patrice. And so wow. I thought I'd wear something that kind of connected all of us because we've all had an opportunity to uh, become who we are through this yeah. amazing spot. That's where Patrice at the cellar called me a codependent bitch. And I had, <laughs> I know, dude, this goes back to what you were saying. That hurt my feelings or, you know, it, it really more embarrassed me than hurt my feelings. Like I'm sure it hurt my feelings, but I was more like, oh, I, I, I felt like I wanted to hide. Right. And, but then like, this is real that's when I started looking into what codependency was. And I mean, I got to be next to the the word in the dictionary. I've had such codependent tendencies. So just a shout out to Patrice, obviously just one of the purest talents of all time. Just like so funny. There's some yeah. people that do stand up. I feel the same way about Chappelle. And then there are some people that just are talent. Like, it's just like, Oh, you're just, you're doing it. And I'm trying to like, find the part of me that is like that and some people just seem to be a hundred percent that like they can't really? help they can't help but be hilarious and real and funny and cutting and all that right stuff. there's there's some people that it goes beyond just a routine to where they can really share their true pain and they can also you know cut you like a knife because yeah. they know how to insight from something about Patrice in particular, he could really see something in people that um, it was like a superpower. It was, you know, how there were many nights where he just knew what was on my mind and he knew the remedy and the remedy was, you know, hull crush depth truth (laughs) in my face that nobody else was giving me. I got to tell you, man, it was like in my house and the way we grew up, we didn't, we didn't operate like that. We didn't go, we didn't go, you know, uh, no bedside manner doctor coming right, you know, to you with the results. And that's what Patrice did on and off stage. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I, I know I learned 
a tremendous amount from Patrice and Dave. I mean, I, I came up with Dave in New York City, but Patrice in particular from that journey in Boston and then into New York and being on the road together for a lot of those early years. Um, it, he was a pivotal person in my life and helped me to attempt more. He helped me with more attempts than anybody else. Yeah, no, that's right. You mean like in the way that he would take big risks on stage? Yeah, like, for example, I remember walking into the club one night and a girl had broken up with me and I was really, you know, broken up. And he was like, you know, in his Patrice ease, he was like, are you going to go up and do your bullshit tonight or are you going to talk about what you're feeling right now? And I was like, I'm probably going to do my bullshit. I want to get laughs. I, I need to get laughs. Are you going to do uh, Monkey Funkin' a Coconut tonight, Dan? Are we going <laughs> to... He was, he was really like, uh, and I think I went from, there's a, there's a absolute break in where I was a nostalgia comedian, meaning I was talking about the observational stuff that I grew up with in and around versus the relationship stuff and cheating and lying and all the stuff that became yeah. the follow-up album was a lot of what I learned from Patrice in particular, but then watching guys like, Dave in New York City or Attell in New York City, just being very present and allowing a, a moment where you're off course to suddenly be the course. Yeah, that's interesting, man. I, I realized between your first two records, which were big records for me, I was, I don't know how old I was, but I feel like I wasn't ready to let go of the harmful if swallowed style. Like, I, I know we're, we're going too far back in your career. I, I don't want to bore you and I don't want to have you go into a gear where you talk about stuff you've already talked about. But like, I'm now thinking of the, the, the next level that you were at. I remember specifically, I saw you do this bit live about how to get your girlfriend's passcode on her iPhone. Do you remember that bit? Was it where you could see the smudges if you yeah. hold it up against the yeah. light? And you, you just did this thing about cleaning it. And like, because you but you know at the heart of it it's this very kind of sad joke of you know what i mean dark right. and a little bit vulnerable um of like i don't trust my girlfriend i'm worried what my girlfriend right. is up to and i'm afraid so even though you know you might be animated and moving around doing it in your style underneath there was this like there's a wound so you started sharing right. a wound in different sure. ways yeah yeah, I think it was I think there was also probably a moment in and around where you're talking about where I felt like I wanted to prove to myself even at a even if I was wrong that I could do comedy in an entirely different kind of way. And it wasn't turning my way my back on the early physical prowess stuff, but it was really like me thumbing my nose at it and saying like, "Oh, I don't need that." Yeah as opposed to just accepting that like, well, I can be all things that I can continue to grow and change and, and try and fail or try and succeed. But I should never not want to incorporate movement or anything. But at that point, I was really adamant in myself, like, I'm going to show everybody I can just stand and, and deliver. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And I remember feeling some growing pains as a fan being like, I don't, I don't know. Talk about ice cream trucks. <laughs> right. like I, I still wanted that. Cause again, there was an age difference. So if I saw the comedy that I'm doing now as compared to my first album, I would be like, 
oh, sweetie, what happened to you? You know right. what I mean? Because <laughs> my favorite bits, and I'd love for you to speak about this, are the ones where there's some, there's a wound. I, I, right. I always reference this, but I'm, I'm maybe the most proud of this joke. I, it might be the most, and nobody knows it. Like, let's put it this way. Back when we were touring with fans and if there was some sort of like any requests moment, uh, no one has ever yelled out, um, guys don't always want sex. <laughs> but it's my favorite. It's yeah. my favorite because underneath it is like, I don't like that I have to live up to this standard that I'm, I don't know who, who I am, uh, Burt Reynolds or something. And sometimes I just want to <laughs> look out the window while it's raining because, you know, there's a line that I think you might like. I just heard a song that made me think of my dad. I'm not in the mood. Right. So I was trying to bring some like three dimensionality. Yeah. And that, that seems to be what you're still doing. That, that was, well, go ahead. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, I think it was Chris Rock who many, many the, the great thing about some of the guys that I came up in their wake was I was learning and studying the things that they did that were off kilter and maybe were missteps. And I was also focusing on the things that helped them to thrive and evolve. And Rock was like, you know, if you want to hear what I did before, go listen to the other album. Oh, and it was that it it was uh, it was giving us all permission, I think, from those guys to say, like, lay it down or get it out there and then move on. And don't be you know, don't feel like you have to keep playing living on a prayer over and over. You know, we're not musicians. Yeah. It doesn't we're not like that. We're not we're not. Uh, I don't think that we are. um I don't think a comedian, unless they're leaning into something new and unknown, is as resilient and vibrant. You can kind of see that, yeah. you know, and we all go through that every time you're going into a new routine and you're going, do I hearken back or do I dare to go forward? Yeah, yeah. And I, I know I've seen you do that. I've seen I've seen moments in your career, in my career, where it's like, wow, I, I didn't think I could be better. And I've said to myself, I didn't think I could be worse <laughs> that's you know? really true yeah yeah but man but I, the last thing i'll say about that is that when i hit the 2018 and 19 tour uh, and before we all got shut down it was for me it was like the happiest and healthiest i'd ever been at the same time i wasn't going through uh the financial stuff with my managers i wasn't going through the grief and and finally it all congealed and when people see the next show, which unfortunately was going to be in July, but now is going to wait. When people see the next routine, I think, I think it's uh, going to be really surprising because it's finally bringing everything that I know to the table. Yeah, um, and I'm so I'm so incredibly proud of it. Uh, I'm already so proud of it, and it's not even out in the world yet, but. Um, that's like your story. That. That's like the story that you told that I love about the band in the West Village handing out the flyers, and you said, "When's the show?" And they were like, "There's no show. We're just getting no the show. word out." <laughs> right? Fucking it, great, man! It, it was. It was just like that. That <laughs> that need. That need to wanna to to wanna stay relevant in some way, shape, or form, but also knowing. I got to know when to step back because it's not always meant to be your time. And people that try to reclaim time that's not theirs, you're only wearing yourself out. And it's also like this, this whole thing of any kind of artistry is meant to sometimes put up work that's up for uh, 
public consumption and opinion. We don't always have to knock it out of the park in comedy. I really don't believe as you get further down the line, sometimes look what Dave has been doing. It's like sometimes you watch Dave and it's it's a um, it's like uh, a TED talk. It, yeah. It's it's incredible. Yeah. It's prolific. And it's still real and funny. And uh, it's just unbelievable. And, and, and being able to have moments like that in comedy, I think, is so uh, remarkable when you can discover a moment like that that's poignant. Yeah, that's really good. Good point about Dave, too. Something I've been wanting to tell you this whole time, because I think you're going to love it. I learned it from this guy. Uh, there's a series called Game Makers Toolkit that talks about designing video games. Anyway, one of the guys that makes video games came up with a slogan that I think is so applicable to what we do and any art form is fail faster, find the fun. So it comes down to this idea that they would try this game. The game is this, it's this, it's this. And then they'd fail. And they thought that was a good thing. They just want to fail. They know the failure is going to come, but let's just do it fast. Let's, right. let's do it. Let's green light it, make it, play it. It sucks. Okay, that sucks. But this one part of it is good, and that becomes the game Braid, right. which was an incredible game. And that came from all these failures. I'm not right. calling anything we do failures, but like getting to a place of maturity as a creator where you're like, failure is, is the cobblestones on the path, and we, let's just do it fast. Let's right. do that, like, whether or not that bit made it to anything. Let's do the weird uh, girlfriend passcode bit. I don't care if it knocks it out of the park to use your language because that's not the game anymore. That's right. When we were young, I think we were just like, can I kill? Can I get a standing ovation? Can I make everyone like uh, Gaffigan said, be undeniable. It was some of the best advice I ever got. He's like, nobody wants you. He's just like, get to the point where they can't ignore you. Okay. You did that. And you've done that. You did that huge. You did that huge. I don't even want to put myself in the same category. Tell me a little bit about like, what the game becomes about now, especially with this special that doesn't exist yet that you're already excited about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, really what it becomes about now is cultivating. What it becomes about now is trying to, you know, I've always loved theme. I've always loved uh, how any album or any special there's for me anyway, there's fascinating, you know, onion layers to be able to go like, okay, why is it in the round? And then let's go 10 steps back on what led you up to that. And it goes back to 1978, Carlin in Arizona. And and to me coming up with something that is beyond just, oh, here's a funny piece of material. And then you laugh at it, it dissipates and you go home. What's something that keeps it on your shelf? What's something that keeps it on your queue? And where I'm moving towards now is I directed my last one, Troublemaker, and the next person directing my special, I can't let the cat out of the bag, but it's... What if this isn't out for a month or so? Uh, I can't, I, I don't want to say until it's done or close to, but it's working with people that are game changers. It's Steven Spielberg. <laughs> it's working with, you know, it's like, it's fine. It, well, it is finding those people. I'm sure, <laughs> I, I'm sure that you hit that crossroad where it's like suddenly you're working with, Judd Apatow and you're like okay this is this is taking everything that I know and all my great abilities and now you're taking all his great abilities and what happens when those two entities come together I hit the upper echelon with everything I could do as a solo stand-up storyteller now let me share those moments with other 
top tier storytellers and see what we can create in tandem. So I think that's what, you know, year 30 and, and beyond, you're going to see with my next special, it's going to be planting the flag the way I did maybe in 2000 and digital and MySpace. And this is how I wanted to build a crowd then. I think in some ways, I'm going to show people what you should be doing now. And what I think is the next evolution, when I think in some ways, stand up is going through an identity crisis. You mean you think it needs to evolve or it's going to die sort of thing? I think it's – no, it's not going to die. I think it's evolving, and it's evolving in an amazing way. But look look at – there's one piece of the of the, the equation right now. A lot of stand-ups are not performing. A lot of old-school stand-ups because we want the visceral reaction. We want the crowd. And yet there's a bunch of kids and a bunch of people doing virtual shows that you or I might be like, I don't know if I want to do that. But they're like, fuck it. I have nothing to lose. And they're coming of age with a group of people that don't care that it's not in a crowd. They're going to watch you right here. They're going to emerge and they're going to be superstars from this. Yeah. While other people sit back and go, I don't, that's not my jam. Right. It's funny because it takes that. I think to you and I, right. I I think comedians, I always liken us to pirates. We we like being pirates. We like knowing other weird pirates. (laughs) And we like sailing our weird weathered boats to strange ports and selling our goods. I love this. It's not really a pirate because pirates are thieves, but you know what I mean? And, and, and worse. But I'm saying like, there's like a swashbuckling sort of renegade risk taking thing to it. Right. And I think the me and you that knows what it's like to be on an American Eagle flight. I'm six foot six flying in turbulent weather to South Bend, Indiana to work the funny bone uh, with Dwight Slade, who's great. Um, is like, man, you got to fucking earn it. You got to do it for real. So like the YouTube and the TikTok and whatever it may be, what is, what is your feeling on that? Specifically regarding like, this is safer. It is safer. You're like, I, I, I'm not even trying to put it down. I'm just right. saying it's safer in the sense that like, if you fail, you feel it in a different way than you feel it like a room full of 300 silent or booing people. Um, geez, I don't know if it's safer because I guess in that same regard, you could say, wow, the algorithm or the comments, or it's really hurting my brand or business. I, you know, there's always the yin and the yang to whatever it is, whether you're live or whether you're doing it on here successfully or not. But where I feel like we're going to come out of this 2020 or COVID era and where it's going to take an interesting, well, first of all, I think, I think, I think the landscape of comedy I think the old school kind of, I guess, boys club of comedy, I think it's over. I think hubris is really like just calling somebody stupid on stage because they like something you don't. I think all that is, is. Yeah, I agree. Is it's over. done. Yeah. That's right. Over. And I think that that's great. And I've, I've hoped to see a more diverse landscape for some time, but in that, what I mean about where I think, what I'm hoping that I can be like at the front of the lines on. And cause I, I, I like being that person who's like going to try what could or couldn't be the next way to do something. I think where a lot of comics are misstepping right now is they do these podcasts, they build up an incredible audience with their podcast and yet they're not working their craft. They're just working the behaviors and the antics of podcast chat. And then they're going on stage and there's not well-crafted, fierce 
cutting bits. And so out of this era, yeah, the comfort of sitting back in a chair and just doing the podcasting and then touring, you might be able to fill a room, but are you going to have the longevity? Because are you that good live? Are people going to come? Are people going to buy tickets twice to a Q and A or, or or just a meet and greet? That because I I know that temptation as a podcast host. You do the live shows and it can just feel like a, a fun hang, and you're right. like, oh my god, there's no pressure. They already know me. They know the tone. They know what I'm about, and we can just uh, fuck around. And that is really fun. But there's something so different about. I, that's why I love going up at the store, which is where I usually run into you and just, they don't know you're there or they do and it doesn't matter. Right. And you're just, and you have to go up after somebody great and, and, and you're just, you're just boxing again. I know I'm mixing yeah. metaphors. You're boxing. The, the, mecha- the mechanics seem, the optics on podcasting and stand up and the mechanics are so different, but the optics, it seems like it's in a similar but it isn't. And, and the thing that starts to happen is you start, you can see people that if they don't work their craft and they don't put in their, you know, continually put in their 10,000 hours on the next routine is you're ranting and you're, you're kind of like non sequitur into a tangent, into a rant, into a, well, anyways. Right. And that, you know, that's, that's gonna, for the people that want are going to work hard and be out there and go into the gigs they don't want to go to and the places they don't want to travel to for the money they're not going to get. Uh, those are the people I think that are going to win. Cause if you can use both of these mediums, yeah, you're going to have something that's, that harkens back to what I broke through using the medium of digital, but having what it takes once people are in the room to give them a fucking hell of a show. Right. And I'm hoping that with my next special and the people that I'm doing it with, and the ability to to pal around in this way, it'll be like the right combination for giving me a nice run for the next many years of my career. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's very uh, not even. I don't even mean you. I mean like Dane Cook. The idea. It's very Dane Cook of you to be like, who's Dane cooking it now? Who's the guy that's like, you guys are too old. You don't understand. This is where it's really at. And I, I think it's always important. We've, we've said it many times on the show, even though I don't really work out very much. <laughs> it's cardio and weights. Like, like stand-up can be like your weights, so you're strong. And yeah. cardio is like, am I fast? Am I moving? Am I, am I keeping with it? That's really interesting. Is, and, is, yet, and yet we're also going to see, I think, um, a more diverse what a comedy routine really is. And I think there's a lot of comedians, guys and girls that are that are doing these uh, more storytelling, but real personal, real poignant. And so I think that, I just think that it's going to be a new Rolling Stone cover of what comedy is when we come out of this. Yeah. I think it'll be more important than ever. I think that if we can get as healthy as we're hoping we're going to get, I think you're going to see comedy be the biggest thing. Um, live music, obviously, but comedy is going to be, it's going to hit a yeah. higher thing than it's done in 20 years, I think. Um, and it's exciting. And I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really uh, enthused to see where stand-up comedy goes over the next few years because it's giving people more permission to be even more real and more present and more like the Patrices yeah. of being like, just take it all to the stage, who you really are. It doesn't have to be a laugh a minute. It helps when you can get to those punches. Yeah. But I'm really interested to see where st- stand-up goes in a new culture. 
It's really interesting. When I watched uh, Chappelle's Unforgiven uh, clip, I guess it's like 20 minutes or so. I, I don't even know if we call it a clip or a special or, but when I watched Unforgiven, it's like the moment that stuck with me was when they, when HBO passed on Chappelle's show, they said, what do you, what do we need you for? Unbelievable. I know. And there's that moment where he says, that's what you need me for. And I was so happy that it didn't get like a cheap applause break because the yeah. audience was experiencing what I was experiencing was his pain. Like it, it was right. like, it wasn't um, petulant. It wasn't like a, a, a child. It was like a real, that fucking hurts. Like this, that hurts. And, and it landed. So it's like another color that, again, Patrice and these guys were like, and Bill Hicks too, um, were like pre-podcast, onstage podcast style comedian people that were bringing, bringing every part of themselves when True. really you didn't have to. You could you could be even more popular yeah. if you just kept it to like you don't have to know me you don't have to know my pain my wound my hurt here's a killer ten minutes on Sprite uh, that that would have been a better business decision arguably but I don't think we'd be talking about them right now <laughs> I think that I think that when you see somebody like you know we keep talking about Dave but there's so many more people we could bring into this conversation but primarily because uh, Dave just released that. When you start to think about, wow, a comedian can can be that poignant, but we know how funny Dave can be when he grabs onto something that's just wonderful observation and just hilarious escapism. Yeah, that combination for whatever Dave's next special is like, sign me up. I cannot wait to see that. But I love that we all have permission to live in that space in yeah. in a in a greater way. My my quick HBO story was I did my first special there with Marty Culner. I thought after the success of that special, I'm like, I'm going to do 10 more of these here. I'm going to be an HBO darling, me, Chris Rock, and whoever. And I remember when the regime change happened, I got on my conference call with them. And the people that were there at the time said, um, I said, I'm ready to do, to do my next one. And somebody on the call said a very powerful person said uh i just don't get it I'm, i just oh. don't get it meaning they didn't get me oh no and i remember that same feeling of being like wow <laughs> wow it's like i thought that we were in the business of show together and i gave you a hell of a bang up show for your network and you're supposed to allow me to continue until it was like the rules they just completely were like Oh yeah, remember those things, the rules that are supposedly on yeah, we don't really go by that. Yeah. And you know, that's so when Dave said that, I, I was sitting right here and I literally sat back in the chair and wanted to text him almost immediately before I finished watching it to be like, man, it's incredible how these moments form who we are and what really matters and all the other stuff that goes yeah. after a moment where you think, I got it. I'm set. I'm the yeah. guy. Well, you know, it reminds me of your dad, uh, not that your dad wronged you, but your dad not understanding you. Dude, that's it. For me, I'm not going to project it onto you. It's like we have a dad that maybe doesn't, and it's not his fault. I mean that. I'm not just saying that to be political to my family. It's yeah. not his fault that he didn't necessarily understand what his son, his the boy that he knew and changed his diapers. And now I'm up on stage at the Comedy Connection flailing about 
and he doesn't really get it. But for some reason, it's what sons do. I'm like, I'm going to make you get it. And then you do make your dad see a little bit more. But there's always another dad. There's always a fresh dad. And right. for you, it was that guy going, I don't get it. And you should have been like, dad? <laughs> like, but, that, but isn't that why it's so, it's so um, you know, comedians and we're, we're so, our love is, uh, is given and passed around to each other in such a strange and interesting way. And we love hearing from each other. Like I can say to you, and I'm sure I've texted this to you in the past. I've, I've texted you bullshit in the past. I've, we fucked with each other. It's out of love. But then I've also looked at you and, and, or said to you, like the way that you deliver and your, um, the haiku of the way your brain works, I think it's, it's, you're in a league of your own. And that's not like, uh, you know, blowing smoke. I mean, dude, literally like in here, can you see me? Yeah, there you are. Okay. Look at this. You sent me that framed Simpsons. Oh, yeah. There it is. And I'll tell you, man, we made the wall. I was like, I did have a part of me that I was like, he's going to put this in the pile next to like uh, a napkin that George. No, dude. You're the king. I I was, uh, (laughs) I was extremely proud of you. And it was like, you know, I know. And again, it's like, people don't understand. I think, you know, they all think comedians, we must just all love on each other and call and laugh. And it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, Man, it's a weird clubhouse, right? It's pirates. There's it's a lot pirates. of pirates that pirates. would love to cut your head off, too. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, sometimes we're also in a way that the loving family that we all were yearning for at home. So it's like to be able to finally sit with you and celebrate a moment to be like, man, you you, you earn something that is in rare air. That I mean, know? that was super special for me. And I'm ha- I've told the story before, but... I was writing the Simpsons episode and there was a scene where Reverend Lovejoy is binging on uh, foods that I wanted to be themed like biblical foods. Um, the, the, the wonderful writers came up with like mountain Deuteronomy and stuff. They came up with some and I was like, but I put, I texted you first, of course, but I was like, I know it's from your presents, which is like a very long time ago. And I know it's not my joke, but I was like, I have to ask. Because I know you understand. I know you understand what we're trying to have a familial feel. We're trying to be friends. We're trying to be the guys that give tags. We're trying to be the people that book the person that's having a hard time getting booked on the road or whatever it might be. And so I said, can I use your line, Jeez it. Like instead of cheese it, it's Jeez it. (laughs) You can't beat it. That's the the best one. Jeez it and Crouton O' Christ. I think we're the two... (laughs) The two <laughs> tags on that original bit. And and your move, holy man, which I... Your move, holy man. Oh, my goodness. I love your move, holy I, man. I'm not, I'm not even Catholic, but every time I've had communion at a Catholic service, I have, I've always wanted to do your move, holy man. <laughs> I, was, I, was, uh, I was beyond proud and excited, not only for you, but then that you asked me to be a part of that, man. So uh, I really yeah, appreciate yeah. that. So cool, man. Such a, such a great accomplishment. Thank you, dude. That really means a lot. And that was special for me. You know, when you mentioned pizza earlier, I think I probably said this to you last time. I vividly remember being in Nicola Pizza in Arlington. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Your, your headshot was on the wall. Yeah. And, oh my and that, that was like hosting SNL to me. I was like, you can get on the wall? My yeah. dad 
my dad goes to Nicola Pizza. He could see me on the wall. Like, it was such a big deal. It um, is. It, and in, in some ways, it's the biggest deal. You know, the, those uh, coming home moments and realizing, like, local boy done good, it's, it really, really resonates. To this day, it's like some of the things that people say to me, they'll go like, oh, SNL or, you know, Boston Garden. And it's like, and I'm like, no, I was in a New York Times crossword puzzle. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That, you know, stuff like that, where you go yeah. like, that's the, those are the giddy moments. I mean, for yeah. you to be a part of the Simpsons, like we were babies and watching the Simpsons. And then suddenly you're like a creator on that. It's just like amazing. And, and, and the grateful doesn't stop, you know, the grateful yeah. doesn't stop from there. The, the, the key in life is when you hit a grateful moment, I tell people it's like, if you're feeling grateful, identify it and literally just learn to make it a part of your everyday being. Be grateful for whatever that was and build on grateful to the next grateful. Yeah, there's a science to that. So speaking of Catholics, my homeboy Richard Rohr taught me this thing in, in his books. It's called Velcro Teflon. I love that you just segue, segued me with, and speaking of Catholics. like. <laughs> <laughs> I got his uh, CDs right on my desk here and his books. Um, <laughs> and since we're on the topic of Catholicism. <laughs> your move, holy man. <laughs> he, um, Velcro Teflon, he didn't make it up. It's, it's, an, it's a neuroscience thing. So if I say, Dane, you ain't shit, you haven't been shit since 1996, right? Right. That will stick to you. Of course, I'm not saying that. But if someone says that to you, your brain has no trouble latching to it. That's Velcro. But if I say, Dane, you inspired me. My first website had a blender and five heads went in the blender and it was Regan and it was you. And it literally went in the blender and blended up and made me like, that's like the level of homage. You need to sit with that. If you really want it, you need to sit with it for, I think it's a minimum of 15 seconds. So if you, if you are a New York times crossword and you go, that's cool, but you don't like actually meditate is too strong a word, but like, let it, settle in you it'll just slide right off like teflon and that's true for everybody listening it i think that where life starts getting even a little bit more uh you start opening up the possibility of inviting in more grateful moments is when you have when you stumble upon a moment like that to be able to then take it and almost immediately now my my reaction to something like that happening is what can i do right now to help set in motion somebody else's moment and I try to find that person or whatever that thing is in my life that I'm like, I'm mentoring that person. Yeah. Maybe I can do more for this person. Maybe that per like, I don't want to say name, but I knew somebody was struggling over the last few months with their own kind of bad, uh, you know, career stuff. And, and this person, I'm not friends with them, but I, I got to this person just to be able to say like, Maybe this is the best rock bottom you could hope for because what you're going to build from this moment, if you can be, you know, pr present, and identify. And I ended up forming a friendship with a person I never would have thought in a in a collapsing moment. And mm. it's nice to know that you can then take your failures and and I've had a bunch of failures to go. Here's the data on that, and I'm proving to you you can get back to a place of normalcy. Yeah. So grateful, leading into a thrust of like turning that grateful into like a bigger thing to give somebody else is, is that's really where I feel like I'm most alive. Yeah. That's the juice. That's, that's what Judd is doing. 
And that's what Gary Shandling did for him. And that's what Sarah Silverman, I won't tell the whole story, but I was asking her for a blurb for my book and she was a good friend. And she was like, I just want to point out that every time you text me, you're asking for something. And she's like, I know you are interested in growth and you're interested in consciousness and you're interested in love and and the mystery and all that stuff. So she very lovingly was like, just, just noticed that. And I was like, that was a hard text. It was embarrassing. She still gave me the blurb, which was, I think, so classy <laughs> to be like in the text that sort of was recoursing me. She had the blurb. She was like, oh. there's your blurb. But then she was like, just notice that. And I'm not trying to make myself the hero of the story. I'm certainly not. I'm the fall guy in the story. But since then, I've discovered the joy of retweeting and promoting people's albums and, and promoting people's specials and recommending people for jobs even when they'll never know it was you because that's right. what Sarah's doing. That's what Gary was doing. That's what Judd is doing. And right. that becomes once, you know, you've reached a certain plateau, you've, you've gotten out of the mire, you know, you're no longer in the swamp. You're no longer in the foxhole. Right. Now it's your job to like spread it around a little bit. I want- right. Well, now you've got a lot of, a lot of new um, hats to wear because not only do you have to continue to, search inward of what you want to be sharing in your comedy, but you're building a family. That's a big responsibility. And then you're wanting to grow within your community, both as an artist and as just a member of your community. So that, that getting out of the swamp and out of that, you know, level one into whatever the next stage of your career is, it's, it's really like, are you ready for success? And that's what you see so many people. I know somebody who's a great filmmaker he does very little to move the needle. And I can't, I lovingly do the same thing where I say, I think that you're making these little tiny gold nuggets for yourself and for a few people when you want to start thinking of something that you can do to really broaden and, and reach more people. Um, and so when we can find that and, and do that in our families, in our friendships, in our comedy, I think we're living our best life. If I can do some Oprah right here. Yeah, we have a strong Tony Robbins vibes, but I think you and I have that in common. I love advice. I love yeah. advice. And I love, so Berbiglia, Mike Berbiglia is one of my best friends. And one of the things we so have good. in common. So funny. He's the king. He's one of the kings. And like, he, you'd love him too if you don't love him. I mean, as, as a friend. I think, I think he, he's a no, a no bullshit me guy. Like, and Six years ago, something really nice, like we should do a lunch someday. And I felt like intimidated and I don't think I ever wrote him back or I did, but we never did. But I, I love that guy. Isn't that funny? You never would think that, you know, but I know exactly what you mean. It's like you think maybe you're nervous to have lunch with me, but I'm actually freaked out to have lunch with you. I, I've had that happen many times. My whole uh, my whole life has been nervous meeting somebody for lunch. <laughs> And you know what, dude, I, I have to tell you, Gary Shandling, I've said this a million, is at a party with Seinfeld, and they're both well-established people. And Shandling said, when am I going to stop feeling like this is a nervous lunch? I'm using your language. Mm-hmm. But he's like, I'm uncomfortable. I'm, I don't like this party. And Seinfeld said something I think every time I'm at a party or at a gathering. He goes, if you were comfortable, you wouldn't be funny. And I was like, that's, I take such comfort in that. Nobody. Yeah. I mean, especially like the few like super social distanced outdoor, like two friend gatherings that I've done over this eight months, nine months. 
like I'm out of practice. Like I realized what an, what a social uh, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde I created to pretend like I'm comfortable at parties and stuff when I'm really like, what I love about stand up is what, again, what Seinfeld said, he, it was on his 60 minutes. He was like, I know what to say to those 2000 people. And then he gestures to the green room and he goes, I have no idea what to say to these people. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> the control yeah. that, that being on stage can actually be more comfortable than just meandering around somebody's house uh, looking for the bathroom and, and making small talk can actually be pretty scary for me. I wonder if you relate. I do. I do. But I've also, at some point, I think after my parents passed away, I, 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 I leveled up and this thing happened to me where I started liking, I would earn, I would earn the control by uh, working my craft and being the best I could be at what it was. And then I, and then I, really reveled in feeling out of control. And I don't mean that like out of my mind, but being in a, uh, an uncomfortable situation to where then I had to learn something new. Mm. And so I continued to put myself in that in my, especially in my standup, but it, in living life. So I could have more to observe and report, right? Mm. If I'm in control and I'm the boss and everybody around me is like, whatever you want, dude, that you're not, you're not really observing and reporting much more than, people just, you know, hanging out with you and, uh, or yes men. And so I love the idea of, and I've certainly even this year, more than any other year of being told, you know what, you can only do this. We know what you do. You're this guy. And this town loves to do that. Earlier in the year, when I had the idea to do the live stream, the virtual live stream for Sean Penn and everybody, I called some people and I said, here's my game plan. I want to do a live read of Fast Times with the biggest stars in the world, the biggest movie stars. I can't tell you how many people were like, not going to happen. You'll never get so-and-so. Why would they do that? And I called Sean up and I said, I think I know a way to bring a lot of joy to people, but I also think that there's a way to, to, to bring uh, your organization a lot of, um, you know, a lot of donations. And he's like, all right, what do you got? And I know Sean a little bit. And I told him, I go, I want to bring you back to do Fast Times. And I couldn't believe how gracious he was and how great the call went to where he was like, I love this. What do you need? (laughs) And then I'm in that space. Over the next three months, it fell apart, literally fell apart five times. Not happening. It started to go. We had, uh, I don't want to name too many names, but we had like The Rock. And then it fell apart. (laughs) And then we had... Again, I don't want to keep, but we had a lot of people and then it would completely fall apart. And it was that thing in my mind of like, everybody said this can't happen and it's impossible. And I'm fucking loving this because 30 years into my career, I know how to be at the controls, Yeah, but I don't hear. So when that finally came together and it was that holy shit moment, it was, uh, it brought me so much joy to then be able to take that and disperse it in so many ways, obviously the number one being we made a lot of money for core. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, didn't, I didn't see it. Didn't Brad Pitt do it? Oh man. We had Brad Pitt, Jennifer Aniston reunited them. Um, Morgan Freeman, Matthew McConaughey, <laughs> Shia LaBeouf, Sean Penn. Um, man, it's crazy that I'm missing people in this. It's just unbelievable. It was, yeah. uh, it was one of the coolest things I'll ever do in my life. It was amazing. 
I'm not, I, you know, I should be, but I'm not embarrassed. In Lexington, where I grew up, on the porch, somebody, remember Chicken Soup for the Soul was like the biggest book? Yes. Yeah, I got the bathroom reader I had in my bathroom. <laughs> yes. I got Chicken Soup for the Soul, and there was a chapter called Thanks for Asking. And it's this woman who wanted to do something preposterous, like what you just described. She wanted to like fly her entire family first class from here to there. She didn't have any money. And frankly, I don't even think she had much of a, like a compelling story, meaning there was a story, but it wasn't like we got to get our livers to the children's hospital. It wasn't something where it's like, well, that's a no brainer. It was something where like your endeavor, it was like, I'd love to do this. I think it would be great, but like, I'm expecting you to say no. So like the CEO, I think of American airlines um, said, thanks for asking. And like, because he was like, nobody ever asks. He's like, I'm, I'm the head of, at the time, or still, I don't know, one of the biggest airlines in the world. I have all this power. I have all this executive authority. But nobody calls me and asks me. Nobody gets through. Nobody asks the 50 people they have to ask before they get me on the phone. And he, he said, I'd be happy to do that for you. And he said, thanks for asking. And that was, that was such a formative moment for me. And I really feel like you had a chicken soup for the soul. Thanks for asking. I mean... I sometimes think about this, man, like, what is Brad Pitt doing? I'm sure he's doing stuff. But at the end of the day, aren't we all humans? Aren't we all watching the Queen's Gambit? Like, aren't we all taking dumps and taking a second shower just for the <laughs> massage of it? You know what I mean? Like, we want to do stuff. And and sometimes it takes a catalyst to be like, hey, do you want to do this read? And he's like, hey, right. yeah, I'll do it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, yes. Uh, you know, I know so many people that you would go, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, we'll just use Brad Pitt. Is Brad Pitt on his couch? Is he Floyd from True Romance? Is he just <laughs> laying around lallygagging? Yeah. And then you, know, I know people that are, man, I know some people that are, like, low on the radar in terms of, you know, their uh, optics and the in the – and yet they're busy every fucking day doing something, whether it's boots, boots on the ground for the community or you just don't know, man, until you're yeah. really, I know that through doing that, uh, you know, through putting that together, it was fascinating glimpse into, yeah. What are some of the, the, the elite thespians I know doing? And I was really actually blown away at like how many of them were, you know, doing anything and everything they could to try to, you know, bring solace or, you know, make, make money for, you know, some of these organizations. It was, it was a, a masterclass in so many different things in my life. But for me personally, what I took away from it was even in the worst moment of our lives in the worst year, I'm never stuck. I just have to continue to access right here and I can do something to bring joy to people Yeah, and feel, and feel like I'm uh, meeting myself in terms of, the never ending need to shovel some love into the hole inside of me. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder, Katie, would you Google Dane Cook Enneagram, E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M? I just want to see what number you are on the Enneagram. It's a very, very, very old personality test. And I'm a three and the three is the achiever. And I wonder if you're a three. My guess is you're either a three or a seven. You, you, haven't, okay. taken, you haven't taken the test? No, I love this though. I'm fascinated. I, I bet people, the Enneagram community is fervent. <laughs> so I bet they've typed you is what it's called. So I bet she can just Google it. But that leads me to my question. And 
you know, it's funny. You reached out. You're like, I just want some positivity. So this isn't my Barbara Walters moment. <laughs> Ooh, type eight wing seven. So wing seven means you're, you're a seven and an eight, um, which is, which is very interesting, but seven is the enthusiast. I can really feel that coming off of you. Eight right. is actually, um, those, those people that don't mind confrontation. <laughs> it's interesting. They're okay. sort of the, the ball breakers and they, and they're, uh, I've, I've definitely gotten to that place in my life. I don't mind confronting, but confrontation isn't always a negative, right? Confrontation could be like, no, I'm going to call you. you and tell you, I love you yeah. because I, because I, I feel like you, you want to hear that and I want to say it. So Some yeah, of my confrontation favorite. for sure. Well, you call it like an, a healthy eight. Eight's also root for the underdog. It's like a big part of their heart. Um, unhealthy eights. I believe Trump is an eight. Sorry, <laughs> but, um, it, it, it can go lots of different ways. If yeah. you're, uh, what they call a healthy eight, some of my favorite people in the world. And I'm not just saying that, but I definitely feel the seven coming from you. So this leads to the question, which again, we're staying in that positive place. And I love how light and fun this is. It feels like we're just at the store on that nasty couch. Um, how are you doing with the downtime? Like, how does, how do you do? when you're not achieving and not shoveling coal into the hole in your heart. Right. How old are you now? 48. Okay. So I'm 41 and I'm really using this time to go like, I'm vanishing. Like it, which is, which is interesting as someone who's interested in mysticism and spirituality. That's the whole point of it is, is to vanish and be okay with it because if right. you vanished and you're still there, then what vanished wasn't really you. That's the summation of every mystical text in, in one line, basically. Right. But it can be an uncomfortable feeling. You start going like, mm. who am I if I don't have people reflecting back to me, mm. my specialness, which is definitely my addiction, uh, or my value. And again, not trying to get you to break down or have that weird moment, but this time has been hard. Like even if yeah. you can get lit up and get all those great people to do that read and we can have this great conversation and you can um, plot and visualize your next special to the point where you're already proud of it, which is awesome. How are you doing with all that time where you feel like you're vanishing or do you feel like you're vanishing? It's man, what a wonderful and poignant, uh, you know, to dovetail into that quite simply is as a, okay. So I grew up as an adult child. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, and I have, deep-seated fear of abandonment, born with it. Literally from my mom's womb, she was a phobic. She was phobic. She dealt with a lot of different phobias. So I was born like from a lot of fear. And and some would say, just to interject, that you might have even been getting that in utero. You know what I mean? Like there's right. like you're getting a, a certain chemical cocktail. Yes. Let's not give that too much value because when Val was pregnant, she was like, oh, I'm having an anxiety attack. I don't want to freak out the baby. So don't give it too much value. But if it's helpful in understanding yourself, it could be a factor. Right. Yeah. I don't give, I, I don't give it the whole, you know, I don't think it's the whole, you know, uh, shebang, but I definitely feel like if you're encased in somebody who is scared and they're constantly afraid to leave their house, who's agoraphobic big time, oh, no. um, then yeah, you're, you know, you're that nutrition you're absorbing, right? Yeah. Um, and so it took me a lot of years to be able to not identify myself solely through success in comedy, right? Yeah, to yeah. feel, uh, you know, to feel like I'm always embroiled in something, either like I'm failing and why me, or I'm succeeding and yay me, right? Yeah. Can I, can well, I just, 
Oh, yeah, no, please, I don't want you please. to go too fast because I love this stuff. I that's what I feel, uh, Dane, is is when I don't go out and kill the mastodon and earn it. We, we were talking about our fathers, so I didn't even tell you the other one. I would r- relate it to sports, okay. and then I would tell him what something would pay. That was the only way I could kind of try to get him to understand my value, which is mm-hmm. not correct. It's not correct of me. And it's just not a good system. It's a faulty system. Sure. I'm just relating to what you're saying. It's like, right. But that's your shield. That was your defense system. Because underneath the shield, thank you, is the soft wet boy in junior high that just like, I still can feel like that kid. You talked about being the quietest kid in school, the quietest kid in the family. That's still... I think a part of both of us, like this, I, I was loud and hammy and I'd glisten you with my spit because I don't read the cues and I'm talking too loud <laughs> in class and my hands are so wet. I could put out a candle like Nosferatu and it, it, just like an awkward, scary boy. So like not scary. I'm scared of becoming him. So right. sometimes I find if I hang out with family and I see echoes of that boy in them, I'll I'll catch myself striving even harder to exercise or eat right or achieve. I, I, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but it just is what it is. If I see something, quote unquote, like low functioning or or sort of vulnerable junior high boy in somebody else in my family, or I get that vibe, that's the next morning I get up and I'm banging out that screenplay. I'm going on that. Right. Hike. I'm making the smoothie and I'm like, fuck, my machine runs on some imperfect fuels. Right. That's what I wanted to interject. Please keep going. Yes. No, it's, uh, <laughs> I used to look at the, the junior high kid from a distance and feel like I got to fix him. I got to get to him and I got to make him okay. And now it's fascinating because I have uh, my my constitution, my 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 spine of who I have become from a lot of therapy and a lot of reflection and a lot of you know loving myself in a real very real way is understanding that kid doesn't that kid needs to break apart mm. failure loss brings empathy brings cementing an idea all the all the success that i've had well that was like a a small moment i have the storm hurricane moment when you have to learn how do i live in a hurricane how can I, the world is mm. constantly in some kind of upheaval how do i build a better home to live inside the what's normally happening and not this thing that we're striving for which we think success is going to shine a light and then we're going to be okay forever it's such poppycock it's just like mm. it, if anything after a success it only brings more upheaval because some people have an issue with it your family might not be okay with it they, people expect something other people abandon you because they don't feel good enough to be in your there's so much that goes with it but i will tell you pete this year i had my moment of forced reflection beyond just like finding a moment of Zen of really sitting on my porch at at one point, one night. And I was, I was emotional. I I just let things wash over me and I was okay to have a, uh, you know, a moment of clarity for myself. And I sat, I'm looking at the twinkling lights, this, you know, welfare kid from Boston and up on this beautiful hill looking out. 
And I really felt like a version of myself that I was always hoping I would meet someday. Uh, I love that. Which is, uh, I'm a good, I'm a good boy. Mm. I'm a good boy. I'm, I'm the the kid that wanted to be a good boy and just be loved because I'm a good boy. I'm a good guy. I'm a good kid. I felt like I had taken a long way to get there, but that I could finally sit in quiet and silence by myself and not have to have any kind of a claim or be fighting back from some kind of despair. And I felt really happy, like a real, like I'm happy. I'm happy in life. If nothing else happens and the rest of it is I'm the guy in the rocking chair and every once in a while I wave at the neighbor, I felt pretty good about myself in that, in that moment. And that's a nice place to be, to try to, to try to keep that balance and stay in that pocket. And, and be self-generating. So it was coming from inside instead of outside in that moment. Yeah, because I could sit there and remember a lot of years where I was running away from that kid. I didn't want to identify as him or be him. And I wasn't him. Nope, that couldn't have been me. I was always this guy. And then there was a number of years where, you know, after my parents and after all, like the the career hits that peak and then I'm dealing with grief and coming down the other side of it's not my moment anymore. Uh, falling back to earth. And then from that moment, I'm running to something. I think I need something to feel like, uh, like I'm worth being loved or giving love. Yeah. Took a long, long time. And I, I can't express to anybody watching or listening right now. Take those risks. Don't be afraid to fail the, the data, the information you will thank us later for, leaning into it. Uh, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this chat. And one thing that we were talking about right at the very start was this idea of like jumping into the next thing, into the next thing. If you look too long, your whole life is looking and not, and not leaping. So Mm. you got to go for it, but don't be afraid to land in the bushel of thorns and life is going to hurt, but it, it's going to lead you exponentially to a place of better value in oneself. I love that. Yeah. My friend Rob Bell wrote this line where he was like, people always talk about the risk of doing something, but they don't really talk about the risk of not doing something. Mm. Like you're taking a risk either way. Right. And, and you and I definitely know the risk of being vulnerable or sharing and, and being humiliated or embarrassed or whatever it might be. But, um, you know, that might be the, the better devil. That might be the better devil based on what you're saying. I think but so. I, I like that you got to that moment where, where you could, uh, it, it it doesn't sound like you were adding up the score and saying I won. It sounds like you were saying that junior high kid wasn't really me just as much as the guy at the top of the world wasn't really me. And yet, you know, you're still, you're still here. So you must be something else. I'm going back to what I was saying earlier. Yeah. I, what I am, what I really am is a confidant that will be loyal to you and will love you unconditionally but please do that for me too. And if you hurt me, I'll even forgive you. That's actually what I am and who I am. That's very eight. <laughs> I'm that's, feeling that's <laughs> any, any whistles and bells and razzle fucking dazzle is just the part of my, you know, cerebellums and limbic systems and whatever that just desires, you know, movement and light and expression. But really who I am is I just want to be loyal to you. 
and I want to impart something on you in hopes that maybe you'll do the same to me. And that's just love, right? It's just, that's how I want to love. I want to love collaboratively because I felt so lonely. Mm, Yeah, I hear that. I really hear that. I get that. Oh boy. I had, I had a thing to ask and then I I was just sort of, I'm not even, I don't even mind. (laughs) Let's just, is it, isn't it okay to just let what you just said resonate for five fucking seconds before I go into monkey fucking a coconut again? <laughs> it, but it is, it's, it's nice to see some, some evolution. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's required, you know, to see a guy that did get to a height. This is what I really wanted to tell you. Did you know astronauts, when they come back from space, NASA keeps them in a bunker for like two weeks before they can go to the grocery store because you literally have to like take time to incubate and recalibrate and all these other words that just mean like get used to not being in outer space anymore. And you, and and you did that. And now here's what I wanted to ask you about your special sort of a gear change. Did you see um, stage fright Jenny Slate uh, on Netflix? No, I have not. I think you should watch that one. It's it's really, really good. Um, Gillian Robespierre, who directed a bunch of crashings, some of my favorite crashings, did it. And I don't know if this is what you're doing, but it incorporates a little bit of like um, docu-style, her life, and then her stand-up, and then her life. And I just found it to be really satiating in a way that just stand-up wasn't. I think Jenny would tell you that she's, she was, you know, being experimental and it wasn't like a bit she had done a hundred thousand times and like polished to the point of absolute musical perfection. That's not what the point of the special was. It sure. was watching talent display itself. And then it would cut to her with her grandmother and you're crying, you're right. crying. And then it would go back to her telling a poop story. And now right. you're laughing. And I was like, when I watched that, I actually texted Gilly and I was like, that's what I got to do for my next one. I don't know if that's what I'm going to do because um, honestly, I don't want to take the time away from the material. <laughs> that's sort of, right. I'm like, if I have an hour, I want to get all these bits and I don't know if I want to interrupt the flow, but it was perfect for that. I'm wondering, is the special going to do anything not just a guy telling jokes? Oh, I see. Like, yeah, at this point, it's going to be linear. You know, it's going to be a special, you know, it's going to be in that traditional sense of, you know, uh, yeah, it's not going to, there's not going to be like suddenly any animation or anything that's going to break it up. But I think more than anything, it's really going to, um, it, my, the last couple of years of performing, it's just allowing myself and the audience to be as close to me as they've ever been. And yet at the same time for me to be at my full power of what I know I can do when I'm just with the top hat on and as the ringleader, right. Mm -hmm. Where it's Mm -hmm. just like, okay, you want me to go back into that gear of like, I know how to tell a a long form story with LPMs. Mm -hmm. And then when I go into that gear and again, doing it for two years leading up to filming it, it just feels like it's going to be a meeting of so many elements of what I see in myself at different points in my career. And even, and even in some sense, being able to talk about here, this is the worst failure and here's why it's funny now. Mm, I to love be able that. to finally own those moments of like, here's the worst, very lowest moment of my life. Literally the dark spot moment where scary words and images start coming into your brain 
Mm. And I'm going to tell you why that's okay and as prevalent and important as anything you think you saw of me up here. Mm. I love that. I want to talk about that. Dane, do you mind if I take a, a leak real quick? Do it. Hey, hey. It's funny. Thanksgiving was sort of a sideways time for me food-wise, eating a lot of ice cream and stuff. And uh, yeah. so like we said, then I'll go hard the other way. It's sort of addict behavior. So I've been juicing, which is great, like drinking a lot of green juice. But uh, that it makes it impossible to get through one of these without <laughs> having to pee very urgently. Don't you wish that it came out as green juice? It did. <laughs> no. You know what's funny, dude? I haven't thrown up without thinking of a puke-breathing dragon. You have this yeah. joke where you go, when you're throwing up, part of you likes it. Part of, Even though it's agony, there's a part of you that's like, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm <laughs> a puke. Dra- yeah. There is something that I, I would always think of. It's that thing of like... Anything that's off kilter in my life, there's always comedy going through my brain. Even at even at, at funerals, at the darkest. Yeah. You know, when I did SNL the second time, somebody I knew had um, committed suicide. And that whole monologue, or at least five minutes of it, was about suicide. And it wow. was like, these are all the funny things that were going through my brain as I was dealing with this agonizing, unbelievable, you know, experience. Yeah. Yeah, it's like we ha- we find that we- comedy and all those things that scare us. That's what it is. And and that's my experience maybe as a comedian is when I when you said it I was like I know exactly what he's talking about. And you know what I think it is? It's something's happening. Like when when Val gave birth, we were like something is happening. Like so much of life is like watching screens and eating food and stuff, but a childbirth is like something is happening. Like right. all of humanity would agree something very big is happening. And in a smaller way, puking is like, at least this is dramatic. Like it's not, like, <laughs> it's not like a boring evening. Like I am yakking right now. It's a story, but a comedian and, and other, you know, creative mind people are thinking it while it's happening. And I, definitely right. That's exactly it. That's, that's the, that's the one beautiful thing about knowing comics is that when you're in one of those moments or they are, we get to, we get to share in something that's almost like in moments you don't speak of a certain thing that's happening because of the decorum, we lean into it. And we sometimes it's like, if you see comic texts during that issue, an outsider would go, you're horrible people. Yeah. When the quarantine started, I, I, it definitely was in bad taste, but I, I wasn't going to share it or say it on stage. There was no stage. But I remember having the thought, I was like, no school, uh, no mass gatherings, no shootings. Chappelle made that joke on SNL. I felt like that was the appropriate time. But right, right when the quarantine happened, my weird brain was like, on the upside, if we can't go outside, there's not going to be any horrible tragedies. Right. Um, but it's happening in, in, in real time. Right. Um, I think not just comedians can relate to that for sure. I also had this thought while I was peeing about Thanksgiving. And then I want to ask you about what you said before I went to pee. <laughs> but I was like, you know what Thanksgiving is for me? What depresses me about Thanksgiving is Val will start chopping onions or something. And there's no stress in that. She's just chopping onions. But it immediately drops me back to my childhood home where Thanksgiving was urgently and frantically chopping onions 
uh, in a rush because Aunt Jean and Cousin Raymond are coming over at four. And I always just wanted to be like, no one wants this meal. Stop. Right. Like I would forego the meal to not have this stress. So even just Val casually chopping onions brought me back to why I don't, there's a lot I don't like about Christmas for the same reason where I'm right. like families that don't handle stress. Well, it's, this is a triggering time. Even of my course. wife just peaceably chopping onions brought me back to my mother freaking out and then freaking out that my father didn't even notice that she made cream corn, which is his favorite. And he didn't even eat it. And I was like, fuck the cream corn. Let's just, right. let's eat KFC and be nice. Like, I hate this shit. <laughs> let's just be nice. Like, <laughs> it's not about the food. It's not about the food. I don't remember the food. I just remember the, the having indigestion from stress. I, Pete, I feel like, and I've never done this, but I feel like you need an ayahuasca trip or something. <laughs> I think I do. You know, I think you need to like, you need to let trauma, put all your trauma on pieces of paper in a baby basket and float it down a river somewhere. <laughs> I and then, and then shoot a fiery arrow at it. Of course, of course. So it's glorious and cleansing. I've I've wanted to do stuff like that. I, I bought a little coffin on eBay to put <laughs> weird beliefs in the coffin and light it on fire. We never. Oh, that's did. great. I was going to do it. I was going to do like a real life ceremony. I should do it. I really should you do should. it. You should. You should. Pete, I'll tell you something. My whole life was dedicated to like a simple early uh, mission statement was I'm breaking every fucking tradition that I know of my family. And for sure, a big one was being okay when there's disarray. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because I did the same thing, man. When you were saying that, it was old tapes were playing, and I was feeling it. But then yeah. I also realized, like, this year, this year, I did everything myself. I prepared everything. I made everything from scratch. I, all those things that used to drive my mom crazy. I used to have a whole routine about how my mom would be up at 6 a.m. while you were asleep. All of a sudden, you'd hear, my bit was, you'd hear pans flying around in the kitchen. <laughs> Oh, no. Because you just hear her screaming in pants. <laughs> and she would yell, this is the last fucking year I'm doing this. <laughs> Dude, you're making me realize something I say, it feels like every podcast, I, and I, I never know who to attribute it to, but I think it's <laughs> Chinese Zen. They say when you're doing a task, one-tenth of the task is the task, nine-tenths is keeping your center. And I was like, of course yeah. I'm obsessed with that. I didn't have that feeling growing up. So Tim Ferriss did this podcast and he, t he did ayahuasca and he relived all these traumas that he, he didn't even know about. And then I was like, oh, this makes sense. People like him and me and, and, and maybe you that like try to have as much control over their lives as possible didn't have it when they were kids. It's so simple. It's so simple. Well, it's also, uh, you know, I'm not uh, putting myself in a philosopher category, even though I, I like to, in my quiet time, think of myself as a deep thinker. Um, I said to my mom many years ago, I said, you, you, create, um, you create chaos so that you can't silently understand what you're really feeling. That's it. 
And I think, I think, and I try to really expound upon that to people to like, sometimes the cutting of the onions, it really isn't so much about that or even the memory it's attached to. It's you need to find something to stress over right now so you can't feel how you really feel about you. Yeah. Dude, I remember my brother saying something about like he he loves being in Times Square. He finds it very calming. And mm-hmm. then we had a conversation mm-hmm. about that. I was like, if there's all this stuff happening, it's part of why we have good ideas when we're driving because there's this huge section of your brain. Actually, Spielberg, the director of your next special said this. JK, um, he said driving, he has these good ideas. And the reason for that scientifically is that so much of your brain that might be self-doubt or might be uh, paralyzing fear is driving the car. So all that's left is the voice that gets to think. But then you can have so much noise that you don't feel or think anything, which I think is right. I want to talk about that lowest point. I don't want to tip the bit in your special, so we we don't have to do it. But what? Oh, no, no, it's it's. That's just a piece of it, right? But what was it? I mean, for sure, the very rock bottom of my life was losing my mom. Um, But what happened to me there was like hitting that rock bottom and then for my dad to go right after and then basically for my brother to, to die in all, you know, in all actuality, he wasn't the same person anymore. My brother was my business manager. I had to put him in jail. Um, he stole a lot of money from me, stole like pretty much my whole life savings. So I went from my mom. I didn't even have time to deal with that grief before it was then my dad and then my brother and my mentor. And so um, that low moment, what it's so amazing because I remember I can look back and obviously be in it and, and realize and remember all the things that, that came over me, but just how fucked up I was because I felt like, she was such a soothsayer and knew so many things about who I was going to be. She was constantly telling me who I was going to be. And once I lost that, that the compass, man, I was like, I was talk about being a pirate. I was a pirate in a ship with no sail. And no compass, which you need on a boat. <laughs> it was, it was, it was as if I truly, I talk about this in, in my book. I actually finished writing my book this year as well because it was like, I have the time. But I talk about that that Empire Strikes Back middle of my life, which went from the new hope was the beginning of my life. And then Empire Strikes Back is in this unbelievable hellish center. And then just realizing there was one moment where I was doing an arena a night to try to make back my money that my brother had stolen. And I had an assistant named Alex. And one night I ran off stage, 20,000 people, Air Canada Center. And I ran into my dressing room. I opened my computer and he ran after me. He was really excited. It was the first week of shows that he was on with me. And I had a show in an arena Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And this was the Thursday night show. And he ran in and he opened up the door. And I already had my towel and the computer open. And he goes, wow, that was unbelievable. And I remember I looked up at him and I said, what was? And he goes, the show, the show. And I just took a pause and I I remember I went, um, I said, Alex, the show's tomorrow night. You were already in, what? where were you? What, what, you were thinking about the next show? It, I was already, I, I remember, I talk about this in the book. I remember I would leave the stage and I would run past everybody i wouldn't high five the crew and 
I would run from the stage after the encore and I would be in my dressing room with my computer open and I could hear the footsteps of the people just starting to get up and I was already working on something else. Yeah. And so when Alex came in and said, that was so amazing. And, and, and he said the show, and I said, the show's tomorrow night, how detached I was from enjoying anything because of the death of my mother. Yeah. I, I really, honestly, Pete, I look back at that moment and I feel, um, I feel like I went to the edge of losing myself to where I, I never would have come back to be able to have healthy conversations like this. Right. Because you didn't want to face the grief, right? This is what we're talking about. That was you working yourself. Yeah. I wanted the simulation to end in some ways. I, I, I really, and I mean this sincerely, I thought, I thought everything that I had done that would, that had proven I was somebody, I thought the joke was on me. Mm. I thought the joke was on me. I thought, and there were other things, there were other factors, man. It was like getting blowback from other comedians and comedians I admired and, there was a lot of things compiling. I got pig piled on by a lot of people when I was already down. I was mm. already way down and I had a lot of people come in and I don't want to relive all those here, but it's in the book. I, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk a lot about it really distinctly in the book, but I was pig piled on in a way that it, you just, uh, you don't always come back from, you don't always get up from. Wow. Talk about doing bits in real time. You were like, they pig piled on me when I was already down. My Seinfeld voice went, that's when you do a pig pile. They have to be down. That's right. <laughs> you don't pig pile gets, when they're up. Who gets pig piled while standing? <laughs> that's not a pig pile. That's a group hug. They got to be down. First the down, then the pile. Otherwise, it's a stack. <laughs> it's a stack. <laughs> you don't pig stack, you pig pile. <laughs> That is heavy stuff, though. Riff aside, yeah. heavy, heavy stuff. I'm really glad that you got. But I've learned. I will. Yeah. I, the the thing that really came from that to now, and I and I I love telling people this. The universe, you know, a lot of people talk about like you know making agreements with the universe, and the universe will cooperate, and you know, and I believe in all that. But the one thing I I understand about the universe is. It wants you to be in motion. It's, it's created to orbit. And, and the moment you try to have stillness that's, that's to protect yourself, that's when things go out of that orbit. So, you know, that idea of like, for me anyways, that um, I just, the, the long story short of it was, I just felt like from that moment in my life, I, I suddenly realized the only way I was going to be able to exist moving forward was to find my true orbit and not try to be the center of a universe or did I, what's my orbit? What's my real loving routine to myself? And it took a long damn time to get there, but worth the journey, worth it. Yeah. And to flow, even the beginning of that story where you were like, I'm doing a tour to make back the money seems to be in opposite of what I see as the law of the universe. You know what I mean? It's like the kind of the wrong mentality. It doesn't seem to be the mentality you have now, but going like, I was wronged. Fuck you. I need to do these shows to get that back. Doesn't feel super abundant. I was actually just thinking about that because I was like, this is the most balls out generous Christmas ever. Like I really want to go 
to the nines. And I'm not really working. We're none of us are really working that much. Right. And it was like, that is one of the ways that I see that. I'm like, I want to keep flowing and keep moving and keep right. giving, not just material things, but of my time and of my energy and all that stuff. Because I'm with you. If if you start to become like a pond and you just get green and algae and stagnant and the mosquitoes come, nature seems to have a way to like give you an earthquake that'll turn you yeah. into a river again. Yeah, it's also like to be able to live your life and understand that you need to work from in out. Like over the last couple of years, I got, you know, I got opportunities and I've had offers, uh, finance, you know, financial stability kind of offers that would be outrageous to, to do my special with somebody before it's even done. And I was like, I, I don't, I, I've had nothing in my life. I had everything. And then I had nothing again and I earned it. So I went like rags, riches, rags, riches. So now I don't live my life from the offer and then move from there. I go from when I are, when I organically am ready and I feel like I'm seasoned and, and my abilities are ripe and I'm ready to go. Well, hopefully I'll be met with some kind of lucrative blah, blah, blah. But if I'm not, maybe it's not meant to be like that for this particular thing. So I don't work from the outside offer in ever anymore. I work from when I'm ready. It's the in software back in the day. It'll be, it'll be done when it's ready. Right. I, they don't. They don't release. Uh, unlike the gaming company that released the game, the philosophy I grew up with was that whole thing of like, "Wow, it'll be done when it's ready." I wish I could live like that. I made it so young that managers and people are like, "You got to do this. You got to do this. Take that." And sometimes I was like, "But I know that's good money, but I don't know if that's." And I made right. a lot of decisions that way that were not and uh, didn't move the needle spiritually mentally anything for me so now it's nice to be able to say to be in a position to say no to everything but one thing yes to me yeah that's very berbiglia berbiglia is the guy that Uh, i call when i go i got an offer to be in a pilot but it's bad but like it's good money and he's the guy that just you need these friends that just go like are you he, he always says the same thing he goes are you really on this earth to just do the thing that came across your path? Like, right. is that what you're really, you're going to die. I told him an embarrassing story recently. And he was like, you have to do that on stage. And I go, it's too embarrassing. And he goes, are you going to save your best stories for the grave? And oh like, gosh. you need those friends, right? Yeah. And I've started to, oh. I, I just hear what you're saying. When you're just saying yes or no to all these things that come to you, you're missing out on the most important thing, which is like, what do you, what do you want yep. to do? Cause I have, I have, do. I have road tested in, in proof positive in my life that um, the power of no, and to be able to like, uh, even though when you feel like, but there's no other opportunity and offer, it's like, no, that's, I, I have proven that if you are patient and you wait, something comes along that's more meaningful yeah. If it happens to be lucrative, great. But trust me, meaningful is is the is the monetization that you want to take with you after it's after this simulation ends. That's right. Right. That that's the better currency. So that's that is again, the, yeah. Mike is the master of that. He's like, I turn down a billion things like this. He's like, because I have a movie that I want to make, and he, 
and he does it. I don't know if you've seen Don't Think Twice, but you have to see it. I have. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Yep. It's, such, it's such a powerful movie, I think, especially for people that came up. I don't have to explain the movie. Um, are there any other... This is usually the part of the show where we talk about the spiritual stuff. We're sort of already talking about that. How has your relationship with the universe evolved since we talked seven years ago? Yeah, I think I've always, you know, I spent some time in, in and around uh, China in 2001 for many, many months to do a film. And it kind of solidified or cemented in me that I'm a firm believer that we are energy and that energy is forever, and that I be, and and I'm comfortable with that Zen Zen kind of, you know, life is a wheel and things do come around and lessons, you know, you can close circles. So for me, um, I, I whatever that voices inside me tells me, whatever it is that I'm doing, I'm I'm onto something because it's it's filling me with a lot of uh, hope for what is next after whatever this life is. Yeah. I don't feel lost in that way. I feel like the way I live my life and the way I allow those circles and, and that kind of philosophy to dictate who I am and how I treat people and how I wish to be treated. And um, I feel like I've got to, you know, with karmas and manifestations and I'm feeling like I'm, uh, it's a, I've got a good tempo on that. I love that. I think you'll enjoy this quote. I think it may be every day. I go, it's Eckhart Tolle. He says, the opposite of life isn't death. The opposite of death is birth. Life has no opposite. So it's just another way of saying what you're saying, which is like at our core, everybody where eyes can't see is the same sort of energy and it has no opposite. Being has no opposite. Death and, I and think, birth. And I think that to kind of bring it back to, you know, people are just tuning in saying, well, talk about it in relation to comedy. I think that when you see a comedian that has understanding like that uh, and can take that understanding and yet also interpret it with the pain in the, in the, in the real bumps and grinds of life, that's such an amazing place to be as a performer, because I think that's what they're buying into the, right. I think we talked about this even six, seven years ago. The, the musicality, whatever your da da ba ba da 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 up there is, they're, they're geared into that, but you only get musicality when you really feel the symphony of life flowing through you. Yeah. So you're in the middle. They're, they're glomming on and loving a person that's present, but you can only be there if all that other symphony of life, you really understand it. You've been really listening. Yeah, I love that. It's interesting when you said they don't want us to play Sweet Caroline again or whatever song you said. They yeah. also, the audience also doesn't want to play it because they have to play it. I, I saw Brian Regan at Zany's in Chicago and he uh, somebody requested, I think it was the peanut butter and jelly bit. I'm not opening two jars. And he did it. No, I'm sorry. It was Mitch Hedberg. Somebody yelled out a joke and Mitch Hedberg did it. And yep. no one laughed. And he said... You asked for it, laugh, fucker. And it was such a <laughs> it was such a funny line. But like what what doesn't work in that is exactly what you're saying. Yeah. A, a good performer yeah. is somebody who understands and honors the pain and the bumps and the grinds and the grief and the despair. Yes. And also goes, 
gets the cosmic joke. This is just a, a play we're putting yes. on for ourselves. You're yes. wearing, you are the universe asking itself, what would it be like to be Dane Cook? And I am the universe asking itself, what would it be like to be Pete Holmes? And I don't just mean the famous parts. I mean, like when Pete wakes up and he has a loving wife and a loving daughter and his needs are met, he is doing better than so many people. My heart goes out. Why am I waking up so depressed? The universe wants to play that game too. It even yeah, wants- the other the other version is 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 called fan service. And yes, we'll watch the Mandalorian and go, oh, I love that they put a Endor, you know, trooper in you know that fan service because it brings the nostalgia. And all the nostalgia is is going. Remember when you felt okay, or that you were at the beginning of the the ride? Yeah, yeah. right. And so, and so the fact that you can get to a point or we've gotten to a point where you don't need to do that, but you can still embark on a journey where you take your fans on, like they recognize that part of you, but you're still telling them it's okay to like, look past that. I mean, God, that's to me where you want to just, I want to keep failing and trying in that, uh, in that realm, man. It's such an incredible place to be, to know that you've gotten to a, a point in your life where you can share all those high highs and low lows and still know that you love you and you're going to be okay moving forward with your family and your fans and your friends. And man, it's such a remarkable journey we're on. I didn't know we were going to go this deep on this conversation, but you got me feeling all kinds of things here. I love it. But that's great power, great responsibility. So speak like the devil. You're speaking spelled bit. Of course, when you said that, I pictured, I actually was speak, picturing my speak in math, which was blue, right. but it brought me back to my childhood. And I was like, remember when I felt okay. But yeah. then as you evolve, now you're talking about your heartbreak or losing your parents. That's a powerful thing to do saying, let's even go there. And we're right. that that's what, um, so Byron Katie is this incredible teacher of mine as well. I say of mine as if I, I just mean her books. And her whole thing is, you're okay. Like, even if you're in this terrible situation, you are okay. At your fundamental level, you are okay. And you right. need to get in touch with that. So I think art, stand-up, other th- film has an opportunity to be like, let's look in the dark corners and still be like, oh, we didn't think we could follow you there. And I'm right. making point again. And we did. And we're still here. And we're okay. And I think that that can be, so even though you're not doing the, remember the Kool-Aid man, you're still bringing people to a place of okayness in right. rockier waters, which is really a, a powerful thing. Well, especially when they can look at something that you brought them joy in that way back then. And then somehow you're both on the same frequency now and they're enjoying you now. And like, I can't tell you how many times I did shows on the tour last year or in the 2018-19 where I would meet now fans with their uh son or daughter yeah sometimes their son or daughter was a fan of mine from employee of the month and they're going this is my first time seeing you as a stand-up but my dad saw you in college and you're having this (laughs) moment where now you're delivering on something for two different generations and they're both getting um they're both getting kind of turned on and excited visceral reaction but they're both coming at you from different stories of what you mean to them. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's such a, man, this whole thing, this whole ride is, uh, 
you know, for people that get to stay on it and here I am, 30, how many years, I'm 30 years in, how many years in? 20 years in, yeah. It's just, I mean, we're so fortunate, you know, that we get to grow, evolve with a generation of fans. And, and the cool thing is, I had people over the years write me and say, why don't you do things like uh, Harmful anymore? Or they'd be upset or they blah, blah, blah. And then years and years go by and they email me again or they DM me again and they go, I came and saw you last year. Yes. I couldn't believe that you were still speaking my language about now this, this, and this. It's like, yeah, wow, I don't think, such- I don't do. I think you'll relate. The best stand-up shows are where the crowd sucks and you go up and you turn them right. That those are my favorite shows. If everybody's killing, it's like, yeah, I went up and it was a home run derby and we all won. I'm not trying to beat the other comedians. I just like, if right. you can convince a shitty, tired, drunk crowd at the Boston Comedy Club at 1 a.m. to give you a chance and, and laugh, um, yeah. that's a great story. And I've had those moments, too. Uh, I don't want to encourage people to write me uh, DMs like this, but I have gotten a few that are like, I used to hate you. I didn't understand what the fuck you were doing. I hate your face. And if I can get through that part, yeah, I know. <laughs> and then they're like, and then... Um, maybe it's then I went through a divorce or I met more people. I met different kinds of people. Like I I just have, I have people write me shallow, mean shit too. And I'm like, you in 10 years, you will be a different thing. Like, you don't know that you're writing a 41, you're like 18 year old writing me. And you're like, you seem gay or something. They'll say something like that. I'm just like, I know where you are. I know where you are. Right. And in 20 years, you're going to go, fuck, I think uh, now I understand. Now I can hear right. the frequency of what this is. And that's I not- literally had a guy write me up about a month ago, and he said, I wrote you six years ago. I said all this horrible stuff, and I just want you to know that I was in a terrible place in my life. By the way, I've gotten this up so many times over the years, and I wrote him back immediately. Yeah. Immediately. I wrote, I, I said, dude, it's all good. I go, stop carrying that around, man. It's, it's, it's fine. Let it go. Flame arrow. He, he and I can do the flame arrow ceremony and let go of our past traumas. Flame arrow is powerful. And I, I can tell you've done some flame arrow work, Dane, and I'm really happy. And you as well, man. I'm this very, is- very pleased for you and, and how you've grown your life and your family. And I wish we were closer on the regular you know, not everybody's in the in the in the orbit with each other, but when we do get yeah. to see each other or talk, I I always uh, I always love conversations with you. Me too. I'm not just saying, and let's try, let's try to do it in real life off mic, yeah, and have some laughs. Yes, we should. I I, I only re- we did it one time, and I remember you had a motorcycle helmet, and I was like, that was the moment when I was like, can I handle this? <laughs> Meaning, like it seemed it seemed so. <laughs> far from me that you rode a motorcycle there and i was like it was the berbiglia moment in the dm i was like i don't know if i if i can give this guy what he expects he rode an adrenaline machine here and now i'm going to tell him stories from high school i don't know what i'm going to do i remember we met at toast on third uh, street that's right that's right oh dude before we end let's I, I when you did the show last time we didn't do this and it's my favorite question and we do get a little heavy so it's always nice to end on a on a light note can you remember in your life the time you laughed the hardest? Maybe you were a kid. Maybe someone farted. Maybe someone fell down. I know you don't do drugs, but often people are stoned. Uh, is there a moment when you're 
aching with laughter. Where were you and what happened? Oh my goodness. Or you know, I, I just gotta the, go with the first the yeah, first I was thing just that say. I remember I remember being in a I was at a comedy uh a sketch comedy group and we were driving to a gig from out of Boston, like a four or five hour drive. And I was in the back seat and two of the guys were in the front, and we one of them I think had a buddy with him, so it was five of us packed into like this small car. And we started laughing about something. Somebody said some shit. And I remember laughing. I remember looking out the window on the mass turnpike. (laughs) And I remember feeling a feeling of, for the first day in my life, I feel like I'm cared about. I have real people around me that love that I'm a part of this. And we laughed that whole way to the gig. And again, I don't remember what it specifically was. But I remember it because it truly was like an awakening moment for me of like, man, I feel some real purpose here. And it was certainly going to be something that I didn't want to get away from. So I worked hard to stay with those guys as long as I could. And yeah. And here I am 30 years later, still giving myself that nutrition in comedy because it brought to me some feeling of uh, being, being wanted needed. Yeah. I, you're making me realize this conversation is also making me realize that I'm not great at meeting my own social needs. That's what's so great about standup is like doing standup forces them onto me and like talking like this with you and thinking about you in that car. I'm like, I really, I miss the camaraderie when you can get some pirates to put their swords away yeah. and, and, and just laugh and just be together and right. know that that safe bubble of like, you can make a joke about anything and and we'll go with it. And, and I think we also, a lot of us share a lot of the same dysfunctions. There's a real frequency there. Talking about being uncomfortable at a party. I'm looking for the wounded people. You know what I mean? I'm like, right. who here feels weird? And if, and if you feel weird, come talk to me because I'd love to make you laugh. But I don't really want to talk to the guy you know, with the frosted tips that just put his balls in the nachos. Like I, I don't have anything for him. <laughs> right. I don't think he has much for you other than some <laughs> ball tasting nachos. It's a gamey nacho. <laughs> that's, by the way, Dave, that's what I think a party is. That's how few parties I've been to. You know, there's always some guy on the table putting his balls in the dip. Um, with the frosted tips. Yeah. And I, it was not apparently 2002 <laughs> when I went to that party. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for being an open-hearted and good friend. And thank you for doing this podcast. It's, it's, a, it's an awesome uh, privilege. Uh, Pete, thank you. You really, you made, my, um, you made my month. I was looking forward to this for some time, and I know that we had to reschedule it. But um, especially today, to yeah. have this conversation happen today, um, it means more to me than you even realize. So I want to thank you very much for having me on your show. That's beautiful, man. That's what I want. It's funny. Sometimes I do episodes and I'm like, it was fine, but we didn't have that like supernova of like, we did it. We like saved each other for a couple hours. We were okay. That's what I'm going for. So I'm glad we both got there because I feel the same. You got it, brother. Would you say keep it crispy? It's just the sign off. The guest says keep it crispy. Yes. Keep it crispy. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dane. We'll talk soon, man. Can't wait for the special. Take care. See you, buddy. Thanks for that. So crispy. My ice can't make you haters wanna get me. Keep so crispy.